This week, we've got helicopters, moon landers, and plenty of SpaceX. We're your hosts, Paul and Blake, and you're listening to Space Week. Hello and welcome to episode five. We're kind of covering a week and a half really in this one, but we're able to sort of cherry pick our topics here, so we should fit within our usual length. But I'll go ahead and start us off with launches this week. An Ariane 5 rocket launched ESA's Juice to Jupiter. This was on Friday morning for us in the U.S. Before I get into the Juice mission, though, I'd like to mention that the Ariane 5 is the same rocket that took Webb up into space. By oh, the okay, way. yeah. So in case you aren't familiar with it uh yeah it's it's that one so it's a heavy lift rocket developed for the esa that's the european space agency capable of taking 20 metric tons that's about forty-four thousand pounds to leo and 10 tons to gto or geostationary transfer orbit the jupiter icy moons explorer or juice spacecraft has now set off on its eight-year journey to the gas giant oh i thought they were sending orange juice <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to send juice to Jupiter. Yeah, get it? <laughs> okay, so this one consists of many gravity assist flybys of Earth, the Moon, and Venus to help catapult itself further into space. Once it reaches Jupiter, it will then perform several flybys of Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto to take data on their surfaces and oceans. JUICE will perform several firsts. Among these, it will be the first spacecraft to orbit a moon other than our own. And in its gravity assist phase, it will perform the first lunar Earth gravity assist. So yeah, this is a really exciting time for ESA, as well as astronomers eager to see all the data collected on the Jupiter system. For sure. Not sending JUICE to Jupiter. (laughs) Not orange juice, dar. (laughs) Yeah. Now, the rest of the launches here are all SpaceX. So sorry if I missed a few. Work's been crazy, but if there's anything you know y'all would like me to cover next week, let us know. Uh, so onward, SpaceX launched the IntelSat IS-40E satellite on Friday, April seventh. The Falcon Nine lifted off from Florida and made a successful recovery, as usual. Uh, Intel forty, Int- let me rephrase that. IntelSat forty E is a geostationary satellite that will provide better connectivity to customers across North and Central America. The satellite is also host to the Tropospheric Emissions Monitoring of Pollution Instrument. Uh, Developed by Ball Aerospace for NASA, Tempo, for short, will measure UV and IR light to detect pollution in our ozone and troposphere. SpaceX also launched its seventh transporter rideshare mission on Saturday. This was the first dedicated rideshare to launch from Vandenberg, California, rather than Florida. It was also the first Falcon 9 to use a shorter nozzle on the upper stage. So this was actually to save on cost when the performance of the longer nozzle isn't needed. So yeah, so they're now experimenting with shorter nozzles on the on the last stage of the rocket. Yeah. Um, which I find interesting, I guess, you know, if you can save cost anywhere, go ahead and do it. Now, the mission carried 51 different payloads, so I won't go over all of them here, but basically it was several satellites and orbital transfer vehicles carrying smaller CubeSats. So um, larger satellites along with extra vehicles to carry smaller satellites into their final orbits. 
Um, SpaceX, now this isn't a launch, this is a recovery. They had a Dragon recovery also on Saturday. So they had both a launch and recovery on Saturday, which is pretty cool. They returned the CRS-27 Dragon cargo capsule after a month docked at the ISS. The capsule carried various supplies, hardware, experiments, and goodies for the astronauts. So you may actually remember me talking about this launch a few episodes back. This is the one with the fruits and cheeses that the astronauts requested. Sweet. So, yeah. Now, you may have seen it already. Uh, SpaceX's Starship was set for its integrated flight test yesterday. We're recording late again. You know, it's pilot's life. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) Work life, really. Yeah, exactly. So we got to do what we got to do. But um, however... This launch was scrubbed after a pressurant valve froze, is what they're saying. So, remember, um, the fuels in the tanks have to be in a kind of a cryogenic liquid state and then have to remain under pressure. Um, So, there was a valve that froze with the pressurant, and, and that's why they had to scrub the launch. Now, propellant replenishing is already underway ahead of a new launch date for Thursday, April 20th. So they're That's pretty quick after their original scrub date, yeah. Exactly. So they should be back up and running here pretty soon. For those of you unaware, Starship will be the most powerful launch vehicle ever deployed, standing just under 400 feet tall and capable of carrying up to 150 metric tons reusable and 250 expendable. So that's 330,000 pounds and 550,000 pounds, respectively. That's quite that's a lot. That's insane. Yeah. That's a ton. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> it's way more than a ton. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, with that, we do wrap up this week's launch segment, but still continuing with innovative new rockets. Um, Terran 1 is to be retired for Terran R. So let me elaborate here. So there's now word that Relativity Space may be retiring the Terran 1 rocket early to continue further development of Terran R. For anyone here that's new, Terran 1 is a 3D printed rocket that has only had one launch so far, though technically that launch failed. Uh, It was still a success in regards to providing the potential for 3D rockets. Yeah, because... With 3D, ro- 3D printed rockets specifically, one thing that you have to be concerned about is structural integrity. Exactly. So the reason that launch was a success is because it launched off and it reached past mass Q, which is essentially the maximum load factor on the rocket itself. Exactly, right. It reached max Q and it even had you know stage separation for the second stage. It failed to light the second stage engine. That's where it failed. So everything was great as far as the structure is concerned. Um, but yeah, good, good thing bringing that up. Um, however, though, with the failure of this launch, Relativity is suggesting it shifts focus to further development on its reusable rocket, Terran R, rather than spend time and money fixing the issues on Terran 1. Yeah. So... This idea isn't set in stone. Relativity is awaiting responses from their customers as to what they would prefer moving forward. There's a much greater market in the mid to heavy launch sector that Terran R will fill, along with its reusability being a major factor in cutting costs for customers. Yeah. So, as we said in our last episode during one of the listener questions, we talked about the advantages of a 3D printed rocket in cutting costs in time saving, essentially. Making it reusable is even better. So solving the issues with Terran 1 would be more cost towards Terran 1 when instead we should just go for the bigger, more 
fireball rocket, if you will. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. On to our next story, iSpace is now ready for the lunar landing of their Hakuto R lander. The lander entered its final orbit on Friday, marking milestone 8 of its 10 milestone mission. So you probably remember Blake talking about this lander here over the past couple episodes reaching various milestones. We're now on milestone 8. The landing is set for April 25th with backup dates of the 26th, May 1st, and May 3rd. Milestone 9 will be after a successful landing, and Milestone 10 after steady communications and power are established once landed. iSpace is a company specializing in lunar landers and rovers of the future and was awarded a NASA Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLPS, I'm going to call this CLPS, uh, contract to land on the far side of the moon by 2025. Their current business plans involve contracting with other companies for subsequent missions planned for 2024 and 25. In regards to their business, they just went public on the Japanese market. So their shares soared on Thursday from around 250 yen to 1200 yen. So that's about $1.90 to $8.90. So that's a huge spike. That's a huge spike. And the stock continued steadily climbing over the weekend and leveled around 2,000 yen, which is about $15. That's, that's crazy. So they did pretty good on their opening here. Now, however, even though the stock is trading well, company finances are questionable with significant losses reported in previous years. Hopefully, though, these are just growing pains and we'll see improvement through these lunar landing contracts and money raised in the market. Yeah, I'd imagine as soon as they reach, you know, milestone nine or and ten, that stock's going to go even higher if it's successful. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, doing business with other customers, they'll you know get some money that way. Yeah. So hopefully, we'll see things reverse. Now, continuing with iSpace and Clips, Draper has completed the first milestone for their Clips contract. So there's actually multiple people uh, getting these contracts from NASA. So Draper being a, a big one here. They said on Thursday that they have completed critical design and mission requirements reviews. Draper's CLIPS award was given to fund their mission to land near the lunar south pole. Now, ironically enough, Draper is using iSpace as part of their team to help build their lander. Uh, now, remember how I said iSpace is contracting with others just now? Yeah. Well, this is one of those missions. So iSpace is designing the lander called Series 2, while another company, Systema, will be handling assembly and finally General Atomics Electromagnetic Systems, or we'll just say, you know, General Atomics for short, will handle integration of the payloads NASA selected for the mission. Now, the milestones focused on how they were going to accommodate said payloads in both the lander and from an operational standpoint. Now, the payloads aren't the main obstacle in Draper's way. Um, the landing site will require two relay satellites to maintain communications with the lander. And there's some parts needed for these that are in high demand by the Space Force for their own satellites. So now Draper will have to compete in getting these parts. This could mean more time and possibly more money. And speaking of problems with money, Blake? <laughs> so... I, I, I just realized how that came out. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Like, doesn't have money problems. My bad. <laughs> oh, my God. So, problems with money in regards to the space sector and not myself. <laughs> Virgin Orbit has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. So, this is 
really sad news. I feel like they were about to turn her, turn her over a new leaf, you know, and kind of figure out their financial problems. Right. We, we spoke about it previously about an investor maybe picking it up and making it financially solvent. Yeah, we thought it was going to turn around and it looks like it's just continuing to go downhill. Yeah. So, you know, we were on a good news train there for a little while, but now it seems the path forward is no longer viable, if you right. will. And it's very unclear, too. They have failed to secure funding and will be seizing all operations for the foreseeable future, laying off nearly all of its staff. Uh, my understanding is they'll keep some people on board, and I'm going to assume that this is a few engineers and salespeople, business people, anything to really uh, try to continue securing uh, that funding to move forward. Right. Um, now, I had to look it up, but Chapter 11 bankruptcy allows the company to stay in business for restructuring its obligations, so its debt obligations, right? Right. Oh, so they filed Chapter 11. Yeah, Chapter okay. 11. Okay. Um, these restructuring plans have to be in the best interest of the creditor, so whoever's loaning them the money, it they have a say in how they restructure, you know, right. whole thing. So bottom line is they'll be in business, but only a very small team. And like I said, I'm kind of speculating that it'll be a few engineers to kind of maybe iron out the kinks of what they were doing, uh, why they had the failures and stuff like that. And then business people, salespeople, you name it, marketing maybe. And actually, I take that back, not marketing. Uh, so they can maybe go forward and try to secure the funding that they're lacking. Yeah, yeah. It really sucks to see them go after all, anyway. We spoke briefly about their woes in past episodes, as well as positive news from them maybe finding an investor that would make the company financially uh, viable. Unfortunately, there's plenty of ups and downs in this industry, and we've now seen 50 ups and downs from Mars's Ingenuity helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. To be more specific, since my segues are beyond legendary, <laughs> Ingenuity celebrates its 50th flight on the Martian surface. Awesome. So Ingenuity is this really cool-looking little remote helicopter, essentially. it. I mean, you go to Walmart, you pick up one of those little remote helicopters, you're flying Ingenuity, Yeah, basically. pretty much. I mean, <laughs> Just like looks, a very dumbed-down like version. box with rotor blades. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So Ingenuity was sent to Mars to test whether or not powered and controlled flight is possible on Mars. It's been there for about two years now, mm-hmm. which is awesome. You know, that, I mean... It's way outlived its its expected lifespan. I think they even sent it there to fail. Pretty much. I mean, it was just kind of like a little I mean, they, they weren't sure. They were like, uh, is this going to work? Let's find out. <laughs> we'll find <laughs> Only out. Only one way to see. <laughs> but since it's text have been successful, and it's still flying. I mean, I don't know how often they actually fly it, but it's still going. I mean, 50, 50 flights, that's crazy. Yeah. They're now exploring how aerial scouting for data on the surface of Mars can be, be- beneficial for us. And they're kind of posturing to launch another craft up there, but this time carrying more scientific uh, instruments Oh, cool! to gather more data. So imagine like Curiosity, but as a helicopter. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. I mean, they could cover so much more surface. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. And then also too on the on NASA's Ingenuity website, this was really cool. It made me really excited for the future. I hope we get to see this in our lifetime. 
but uh, they're talking about maybe having astronauts fly helicopters on Mars. Oh, that would be cool. That'd be that'd be pretty sick. A little scary, but pretty cool. <laughs> hey, man, I want to fly a helicopter on Mars. That'd be that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. NASA, send me up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, call us both while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems like NASA really wants to continue doing science things on our next-door neighbor. It'd be great to really expand our horizons and go learn some things about our much more distant neighbors as well, though, such as Uranus. Paul, what's happening on Uranus? Uh, (laughs) I'm going to keep it mature here. Okay. So uh, if you haven't uh, seen already, Webb took a picture of Uranus's rings um, it's it's really pretty cool. You know, go go look it up. This is this is a really neat image. So they imaged Uranus using Webb's infrared camera in two different wavelengths, and then assigned one of them to blue and one of them to orange. So the picture isn't in true color, um, and the planet looks a lot more blue than it actually is. But this does allow us to see more detail. In the image, you can very easily see the icy polar cap I was talking about in episode three. So this is pretty cool. Um, and you know, it's kind of neat referencing our previous episodes now. It's just kind of cool. Yeah, it's falling it's in place. Like, we've been here for a, a, a hot minute, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's neat. You know, we're on episode five. We're already kind of like falling back on other stuff and being able to reference that. Anyways, um, you can also, of course, see Uranus's rings in this picture. So now NASA claims 11 of the 13 are visible and that some of them are so bright to web that they seem to merge into one larger ring. Um, when I counted, I counted eight. But if you count two for the three larger rings, you then get 11. So I'm, I'm guessing that's what they're looking at there. I did see that picture. I mean, I thought it was just like, it almost looks like all the rings are like merging together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're kind of blending together. So to me, um, you'll see the most if you look at the lower right hand side, you'll be able to distinguish some of the outer rings better. And I think, you know, that's where I got like the full eight. And then again, if you take like the three bigger ones and count those as two, that would make eleven. So, yeah. so yeah. But um, man, that pretty that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's it for the news this week. There really hasn't been much going on, and like we said, we did cherry pick these topics this week. So let's go ahead and move on to our listener question segment. All right. So um, you guys came up with some uh, complicated ones this week, but that's good. You know, we we like we like that you guys are engaged in the topics. Um, so the first one was, why can't we send a computer or something into the black holes like they do in the movies to see what happens inside? Okay, this seems very simple, but there's a lot of problems we face when it comes to something like this. And I'll just touch on the big ones if that's all right. Um, so first off, you have to remember the sheer gravity of a black hole. Yeah, um, I was going to say, you can't really send if light can't escape it, which is the fastest thing we know about. How could a radio wave escape it? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, you know, it's it's very unlikely that whatever you throw at it, will, will, it's well, it's very likely. I say unlikely. It's very likely that whatever you throw at it will get disintegrated, basically. Um, scientists will call that spaghettification because like the gravity will literally turn you into spaghetti as you get sucked in. And you'll continually be stretched until you're nothing but atoms and the particles that make them I up. just love that that is a... Very real scientific term. It's a real term, and I kid you not, spell check even knows it. Yeah, so. it's great. <laughs> it's like it's, I'm looking at our notes right here. There's no red line underneath it. It's fantastic. Yeah, spaghettification is a real scientific term. 
Um, but second, even if your spacecraft wasn't turned into dust, it would be extremely hard to keep it pointed in the right direction and send data back to Earth. So let alone past a certain point where light can no longer escape, like what Blake was talking about, that's also known as the event horizon, it's very possible that the signal emitted from your godlike craft wouldn't be able to escape the black hole either. You know, yeah, just like you were saying, it's like if light can't escape, you know, how can a radio wave, basically? Yeah. So Interstellar lied to you. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Hey, Interstellar did get some some things right. I would no, say that it was, was like pretty, the pretty one cool. one not factual thing. Yeah, so. was going into the black hole basically. Great um, movie. Definitely go check it out. Yeah. But that's besides the point. Um, you're, you're basically just going to completely lose communication with it and won't be able to retrieve your data. So even if it makes it inside somehow and stays intact, you're you're not going to be able to retrieve the data back from it. And and lastly, even if the data was to be sent back, okay, say everything went right, even if you were to send the data back, the distance black holes are away from us means that it would take thousands of years for us to receive it. And the closest black hole, if you remember from last episode with, with Blake talking about uh, this one, uh, Gaia BH1 is about 1,600 light years away. So even just getting our little spacecraft there at the speed of light would take 1,600 years. Yeah. Um, so until we can travel at or beyond light speed, it's it's likely we won't see a probe going to BH1 anytime soon. But oh, I, yeah, right? <laughs> you know... I think it's a fascinating subject and to maybe just get close enough to measure some sort of forces would be really cool. But, you know, I think this is a really great question. Even if it's a crazy idea, you never know what's out there until you start looking. Uh, second question was, why bother giving Veritas 1.5 million when the program is being shut down? Is there just a way to temporarily, you know, is it just a way to temporarily retain the program? And, I can't give you a for sure answer on this one because I don't have access to NASA's pocketbook and I can't call Lori Glaze, who's the director, and be like, listen, lady, what gives? Politics. Just put it that way. <laughs> you know, you have these NASA uh, commissioners and stuff. They're going towards Congress and they're saying, hey, give me X amount of taxpayer money. And then they have to go through and they have to justify why they need that much and you know unfortunately congress did not give us enough money to send somebody to mars well yeah <laughs> no but, I'm kidding but I that's mean, the venus probe yeah so it's not only what nasa made in total but also how they're going to allocate it you know and that's what i was talking about like i can't just call lori glaze and be like what gives lady you know i mean maybe one day i'll have the credentials to call up a nasa director but until then dude if you make it there Spot on. <laughs> Excellent. Just just tell them that we need $10 billion to NASA right now. I mean, hey, you guys keep sharing Space Week around, Sorry, and people will know who we are, and then we're gonna, we'll call up all the NASA directors and find all the questions out. And, I and we'll, tell them, we'll tell them, hey, take all of, the, take all of my money, okay? <laughs> and just do space stuff. <laughs> just do, we don't need to live anymore as long as we do space stuff. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but anyways, kind of getting back on track. Yes, I think the money is there to keep the program afloat for now. But remember, it's it's not being completely shut down. It's on a definite hold. 
And I think what's happening is they have a couple of other missions ahead of Veritas, and they're hoping that the success of those will help bring more funding back. And, and then we can see Veritas start up again. Um, you know, so that was a big hurdle to funding. But also, um, if you remember, the Jet Propulsion Lab still needs to complete the radar that's going to go on this thing. Until they complete that, they're kind of stuck in the water too. So even if the department gets more funding, they still kind of have to complete these other things to kind of show that, you know, have something to show for and then continue with, with Veritas. Yeah, for sure. So that wraps it up for the news this week. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us talk about all of the exciting and also sad news of the space industry today. You can find us on our website, spaceweek.co, where you can also find links to our Facebook and our Twitter account, at spaceweek underscore. Be sure to follow us on your favorite platform to know when our next episode goes live. And real quick before the sign-off, I know this episode was kind of short, so if there's anything else that you know we missed that you guys would like us to touch on, let us know. So, keep your eyes on the skies. This is Paul. And Blake. Signing, signing off. off.